Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm breaking the rules a bit. I'm not talking to a debut novelist, I'm talking to a non-fiction writer, Gabriella Brown, and her book, All That We Are. I thought it would be interesting to have a different perspective on writing and how to get a book deal from someone that's approaching it from a non-fiction angle. Gabriella is the director of a consultancy firm, Working Well, which uses psychoanalytic and systematic thinking to help leaders understand the truths of behaviour at work. In this episode, Gabriella talks about the challenge of being vulnerable and writing about herself, how storytelling is just as important in non-fiction, and how the journey to publication works when you're writing non-fiction instead of fiction. But first, here's Gabriella with an extract from All That We Are. Appleby House stood at the end of a long gravel driveway with sweeping lawns on either side. I imagined Jane Austen's Emma looking down from a perfectly proportioned window or strolling out of the dusky blue door and plucking a white rose rambling up the side of the entrance porch. Pauline, consultant psychiatrist and director, met me by the front door of the private residential service for children with eating disorders. Her face pale without makeup, her hair pulled back roughly, she told me a girl had jumped from her bedroom window while home for the weekend. She's okay, but apparently if she'd landed two centimetres to the left, a jagged iron bar would have killed her. Pauline's voice shook, my breath caught, as I tried to take this in. I'd worked with this team for a year, helping them to communicate across the different disciplines and digest and manage their dynamics so they could be at their best. I'd heard their fear, terror, for the children's lives many times. Eating disorders have the highest death rate of all psychiatric illnesses and suicide attempts and severe self-harm are common. I knew there were always some children on round-the-clock observation, but this was the first attempted suicide in my time with the team. They aren't like other patients. The children hate us because we try to make them better, Pauline said in our session. And that's the last thing they want. They reject you and punish you for helping them, I replied. It must make you occasionally hate them too. I thought of our opposing drives, the side of us that strives not just to stay alive, but to live our lives, versus the side of us pulling away from life towards death. And with them, 
our extraordinary capacity for love, compassion and empathy, for hope and kindness, our equally powerful capacity for hate and indifference, cynicism and cruelty, the insidious nullification and giving up on life of our death drive. Most of the time, the struggle between these two parts of us is hidden in our unconscious, but in this team, where the children's death drive dominated and life and death tussled continuously, the pull between them was tangible. The threat of death loomed like a battle tank waiting just beyond the green space where children played. Hi Gabriella, welcome to the podcast. I'm really pleased to have you here today with me. Thanks so much, Chloe. I'm delighted. Thank you for asking me. And I'm delighted that you're doing these podcasts. They're great. Oh, thank you. Can you kick us off? Um, we're talking today about your non-fiction book, All That We Are. Can you start by giving us an outline about what the book's about? I, at some point, would have said it's about the workplace, but actually it's really about human nature and how that plays out in the workplace. So it's in three sections. The first section is called Human Nature at Work, and it's really about the fundamentals of our mind, how we have an unconscious, how we need aggression and think it's all bad, but it isn't, how we all, all at times get paranoid, all those different things that are fundamental to human nature. And then the second part is losing ourselves. And that's really about the destructive parts of all of us and how they can wreak havoc in the workplace. So that's got chapters like losing the plot where a board really goes insane and almost causes their company to collapse. It's got repeating patterns, which we'll all be familiar with to some extent, where we repeat negative patterns, but we can't seem to stop ourselves. And in the workplace, that happens too, and it can be really, really destructive. And then the third section is finding ourselves, and that's about our potential as human beings. So it's got chapters like changing patterns and love refound and kindness and all those really positive aspects of what we are able to do. All that we are uses case studies and examples from your career to discuss the conflicts and resolutions in, in the workplace. Can you explain a bit more about what you do in your job and what led you to wanting to write about your experiences and what you've seen? What I do in my work is I work with different kinds of organisations. So I work with health, education, arts and culture sector, private businesses, charities, all sorts of different kinds of organisations. And I work with teams and I work with leaders and I really am helping them to work out what's going on at a deep level, you know, what, where they're struggling, where they're getting blocked, so that they can be at their best. And what I do that's unusual is I use psychoanalysis in my work and systems thinking. And that's a way of really getting at, especially the psychoanalysis, getting at the unconscious elements that you know, are with us all the time and, of course, come with us into the workplace. But we don't think about in the workplace, but are affecting everything that goes on there. 
So that's what I do. And why I wanted to write the book, I got, I got to a point where I just felt very um, frustrated with the likes of people like me, actually, <laughs> who use <laughs> who use this methodology and believe in it, but have been so bad at taking it out into the world. So, you know, how many how many corporates have heard of using psychoanalysis in the workplace? Hardly any. And I believe it has such a lot to offer that I wanted to make it accessible to the workplace. So rather than doing what people like me usually do, which is write an academic book, I decided I wanted to write for the general public, not for other professionals, but for the public, for anyone interested in what happens at work and understanding human nature as it plays out there. And that's what motivated me to actually make this much more accessible than it generally is. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think you've approached it in a really accessible way because you're using stories and you, you're really fleshing out these kind of case studies so that we can picture these people and their, their stories and their conflicts in our minds when we're reading it. Can I ask you what, uh, what drew you to your career? What, what was the sort of defining moment where you took an interest in psychoanalysis? It was my own struggles at work. So I had some wonderful times in teams as a team member and some hideous times. And when I became a leader at a young age with absolutely no training and no support, I was completely lost. You know, I didn't know how you did it. And I didn't understand some of the reactions I got from my team. It, I found it really painful and really difficult. And the organisation was in utter turmoil. And, you know, there was, there was a lot that was going wrong and I didn't know what to do with any of it. So I think I got very interested in really trying to work out how you thought about the workplace and nothing I read seemed to speak to my experience. It was all, you know, a tip about this and a tip about that. Well, that didn't get at the half of what mm. I was finding. And it certainly didn't get at the depth of some of the misery and stress that I'd experienced. So I got interested in something else. I think that was that was what did it for me. And then closely connected to that, I also realised there was lots of stuff in me that I didn't understand at all. And so I think the two of them came together and I saw this um, master's degree at the Tavistock Clinic in London, which was using psychoanalytic approaches to consult to organisations. And I thought, oh, my God, that's it. That's what I want to do. <laughs> And at the same time, I went into my own psychoanalysis at the same time. Going back to the writing of this book, did you always think you wanted to write, be it fiction or nonfiction, or was that something that came as more of a surprise to you? It came as a surprise in one way, although now what I realise now I mean, I don't know if you've found this, but I found that writing is a hell of a voyage of self-discovery apart from anything else. 
And one of the things that I think I realized is that I kind of returned to writing. I hadn't known I'd been there and left it. But now I look and I think I did. Mm. I loved writing stories and, and got commended for writing stories when I was, you know, about seven or eight. And even in first year secondary school. And then slowly the education system kind of beat it out of me. Yes, well, thankfully, the they didn't. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's the same the with reading, out. I find. I, I totally stopped reading fiction or any book, really, and then refound my my love of it as I got older. It's so sad when that happens, mm. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I never stopped loving reading. Reading was always really important to me. And thank God, although the school would say, you know, you can't read that book because you're too young. You, mm. you know, my mum was, my mum made sure I could read what I wanted to read. Um, except there were certain books she wouldn't allow in the house because she deemed them as very bad, badly written. She was an English teacher. And then I went to university and I did English at university. And it was when I did my degree that I think I learned to learn. I think I'd completely forgotten how you learnt and I just tried to recall facts which I hated and wasn't good at. And doing my degree, I learnt how to learn. And so I think it had been around, but yet I'd never thought I want to be a writer. Yeah. And then when I came to this, it was a surprise. Mm. But I think it had been dormant for very, very, very many years. And now you've awoken it, which is a great thing. Yes. <laughs> So when it came to structuring your book, obviously you must have hundreds of stories um, in your arsenal of, of various different workplaces. How did you go about kind of organising your anecdotes and were there stories you had to leave out or cut that you really wanted to include? Yes, there were <laughs> things that I left out and there were some stories that it took me a very long time to leave out to be prepared to let go of mm. there was also some theory that it took me even longer to be prepared to let go of um and I organized it in very different ways over I mean it took me years to write this and it started in a very different way it started in a very different place from how it's ended so I think in the end what I came to was if it's called all that we are and it wasn't for a long time then I've really got to have stories that do show a lot of who we are and what we are. And that became my choice. There are also none of the stories are, they're all composite stories because obviously I've got to protect confidentiality. Yeah. So they became, rather than becoming me telling this very precious story about a piece of work, they became far more gradually, it took a long time, they gradually became the story became important and the story was a mixture of different pieces of work maybe a little bit of fiction added to disguise things and and that then related to a theme that I felt was really important for the book so that became the driving force behind my choice mm. uh, which of the stories in the book do you think had the biggest impact on you um, perhaps the one that you think is the most significant to your understanding of human behaviour? 
Um, can I answer them as in two different ways? Yes, of course. Biggest impact and understanding. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I think probably the biggest impact in writing it as a story or as a chapter was speaking the unspeakable. Because I suddenly thought, oh, I need to write a chapter about that and I have no way in. I don't know. And I was completely stuck. How will I get into that chapter? And then suddenly it hit me, oh, my God. Um, I can't believe I'm struggling to get into that chapter, given my family history and the silences that were very understandable and very difficult. Um, Can you explain briefly what that chapter deals with for people who haven't read it? Yes, sorry. Um, it starts with my family background, and it's a Holocaust family background. So um, in the first lockdown, my sister started doing a project, really as something to do during lockdown. And she started with help um, finding out about our family history. Um, you know, ancestry.com, etc. Mm. And she found huge numbers of relatives that were killed in the camps. I mean, far, far, far more than we'd known about. And it really made me think about the silences that we'd grown up with around what had happened. And we hadn't even known we'd lived with those silences. So I was then amazed that I couldn't think of a way into the chapter. When it hit me, I thought, of course I know how to start this chapter. And I know the, the danger of silence. So I And then I linked it to a very significant piece of work as well mm. um, with a team, a, a team who very courageously spoke about their struggles with their work and some of the connections we made with that and I think that chapter probably the writing of that chapter was one of the ones that had the biggest impact on me maybe mm. not the biggest but one of them I think in terms of human behavior oh that's really hard in a way they all do but maybe among the biggest or the ones with the most to learn maybe is life and death which is the one I read from it's because I do think, I think that keeps repeating in the book, actually, how we're propelled by our instinct or our drive towards life and our drive away from life, mm. our, our destructiveness and our constructiveness. You mentioned um, writing, obviously, about some really uh, deep personal parts of your own life. And there's parts of this book which are incredibly honest and exposing how did you feel about having to include yourself in the narrative? Was that a particular challenge to write? That's a great question. It was a huge challenge to write. It didn't start like that. Um, and I don't think anyone would have made me do that. But I came to it and it felt right and terrifying at mm. times because of the level of exposure. And then at one point, and, and yet I could see that it was enriching the book. Mm. And my editor was very encouraging about that. And then at one point I had to seriously think, 
you know, will I, because I tell the reader far more than I'd ever tell clients. And actually readers can see I'm not telling clients all mm. the things I'm telling them. Um, and at one point I thought, will I ever be able to work again? And I had to really wrestle with that. And I decided very clearly I may not be able to work again and the book takes priority. So that was quite a shock for me, but it was clear to me. And I'm not sure it's true. It, the jury's still out really on what it will, what impact it will have on my work. Mm. But I did decide it's important for the book because otherwise I'd have kind of been the person looking down at people saying, well, I understand this is what you're going through mm. rather than being alongside saying, this is what we as humans are like. Yeah. And I'm as human as the rest <laughs> of us, you know. Do you think when you first started writing it that it was a more, you said at the moment it's not a kind of academic book, but do you think when you started it, withdrawing yourself from the narrative made it a more kind of cold book, like an academic book, do you think? Yeah. I wrote it first. It was written for leaders. So I was, I think it was more academic. It was almost more, I was trying to teach them. Mm. I was trying to teach leaders, this is what you need to know, this is what you need to think about, this is how to do it. And gradually I thought, I don't want to teach anyone. You know, I hope that they, I hope some people learn some things, but that's up to them. Yeah. I'm not here to teach people. So that really, really changed and bringing myself into it was part of that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Did you learn more about yourself in the writing process simply because you were having to write about yourself? Absolutely. I don't think I'd have... I think in the first few versions of the book and there were several um I kind of was at a I was much more superficial in my in my feeling of me and my feeling of my material if that makes sense Mm. and I think by the time it became the book that's out there now I had really dug deep into both me and the material so I understood at times I thought, oh, my God, it's like being an analysis again. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's not. But boy, you do. You do mm. go deep into yourself, don't you, when you write? Yeah. You're not the first person to say that that writing is like therapy in a way. So I know other writers will relate. So because we're spending quite a short amount of time with the people that you mentioned in your book obviously each chapter deals with a different um set of people in a workplace you have to introduce them and kind of set the scene quickly and uh make us aware of their surroundings and their environment and I thought you had a really elegant way of describing a place and I, and I can think of a moment where you even kind of wrote about yourself in a cafe and you've got all the kind of the sounds and the uh everything that's going on in the cafe and I thought that and I know you've said you've had to kind of fictionalize parts of parts of the case studies. How did you approach writing kind of description alongside imparting your knowledge and research? Mm. Um, thank you for saying it's elegant. That's lovely. Um, the places were like the cafe that I think you're probably mm. talking about. That's absolutely a real cafe, but it's planted with the wrong story, as it were. You know, it's a cafe I would go to, but not when I went. I mix things about. I think how I decided on the balance was always really about the storytelling. And it wasn't hard and fast in my mind, but I think it was about what made for a good story. Hmm. So that one, I didn't have in my mind, well, I'll, I'll do five sentences on the cafe or something. I just did the cafe and it felt like, it felt good. Yeah. It felt like a nice thing for the reader. It felt a good bit of storytelling. So I think that was always the thing. What helped the story? Mm. And I'd imagine that the kind of the writing discipline, although we're talking about nonfiction is, it's very similar to fiction in terms of research and routine and kind of I know you've said it's taken you a long time to write this book but can you talk us through kind of your writing routine for this book did you work on it for several hours a day how did how did your routine work um well when I got to the point when I'd got a contra- a deal with a publisher because it's a bit different with non-fiction. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that later, yeah. Okay. Well, when I got to that point, 
um, I then had my, it was sold on three sample chapters. So I then had a year to write it. Um, and at that point, I would say that for most of that year, not quite all of it, but for most of it, I wrote every day. Mm -hmm. And I'm definitely someone who writes best in the mornings. I, in that time, because we went into lockdown, first lockdown, so I wouldn't go, some, in the past, I'd quite often, I went through a whole phase where I'd get up, showered, washed, go out to the local cafe. I'd already be writing when they'd bring me my lovely breakfast. <laughs> um, and I'd start in a cafe every day. That long since went for all sorts of reasons, including lockdown, but not only that, actually. I need, found I needed the quiet um, as well. Mm. But So my routine was to start the day with reading, actually, because I find reading puts me in the right frame of mind. And though I was writing nonfiction, I was reading fiction right. to put me in that right frame mm. of mind. And that that really is important to me and helps me get going. And then after doing some reading, I'd start writing. And it has to be in the morning for me. I find if I haven't started the day quite quickly with writing, it can be very hard to get into it. I can, what I might be able to do later in the day is go back and do editing, but to do fresh writing, I need to be quite fresh. Mm. usually not always sometimes something happens and I suddenly have a burst at seven in the evening <laughs> but usually I, I do that in the morning the yeah. research I'd done before so I wasn't doing research by this point right. I'd done all that before right we mentioned briefly that when you get a book deal if you're writing non-fiction it's quite different a different process to writing fiction can you talk about how you got your agent and how that turned into a book deal? Yes. Um, I actually had an agent some years ago for a much, much earlier version of this book. And he was terrific, really helpful, got me in front of some fantastic business book editors who kind of told me to rewrite but there was definitely something in it long story short it, he didn't sell it and they were trying the business editors were trying to get me to write a book that I'm not sure I could have pulled off mm -hmm. and I think they were rejecting it for good reason really and then I then me and my first agent very amicably decided we'd done what we could and we split up as it were um and I then carried on and found my way more into the narrative voice mm. that I've developed and then I met my current agent uh, I met her very briefly at Jericho Festival of Writing in 2019 um September and it wasn't that much longer I mean, after that, it wasn't long before actually COVID hit us, but little did we know at the time. Mm. And I sent her my proposal in December 2019. We met, she took me on, and then 
she made very few suggestions actually, which was wonderful, though she wanted a different title, quite rightly. Um, and then she went out, we went out to publishers in January 2020. Mm. And I got my publisher, we agreed the deal on the 7th of Feb. So am I right in thinking that when you pitched it to your agent you you gave her a proposal rather than having written and I think you said three chapters so it, it, it wasn't the fact that you had the whole book written at that point no and thank you for clarifying um I'd written a very so with non-fiction you write a very detailed proposal mm. and then you have three sample chapters the first three chapters and then that's what they'll sell on um, and that's normal for nonfiction. Until you'd sold the book, you didn't hadn't written the full book. Is that correct? I'd kind of written a full. I'd written full version one, mm. more or less. And this version is version six, except I called it version five point five because six <laughs> felt unbearable to say <laughs> to myself. And no, I hadn't written it. I'd right. written the fi- first three chapters some chapters existed from earlier versions Mm. many didn't basically I did have to then write it yeah thank you for answering those questions I think it'll be really interesting to people who and Ed and myself that don't know how it it works for nonfiction. obviously it's quite different yeah and I want to ask you now that your book is out there in the world how does it feel what's it been like to uh go in I know I've seen you on social media going into bookshops and holding your book for the first time what's that been like oh Chloe it's amazing (laughs) it's amazing and I kind of do it and I sort of at one at the same time I'm I get very excited and I beam at the booksellers and say isn't it beautiful and I'm kind of bouncing around a bit like a elderly Tigger figure and they're all very patient with me and lovely um, but and at the same time it's real and it's sort of almost I can't really quite believe it and then when they go and I they point to me where my book's in the window and I manage not to see it and I take a photograph and I'm thinking oh my god that's my book in the window <laughs> of Waterstones at Trafalgar Square or Covent Garden yeah that's incredible you can hear my voice squeaking I get ridiculously (laughs) excited it's a fun it's an amazing feeling and thinking about readers who do you think that your book would appeal to have you got any kind of comparisons in mind or or perhaps um what do you think readers need to be interested in to get the most out of your book comparison is Stephen Gross's The Examined Life which took off it came out, I think it was 2013, I think. And it did completely brilliantly, I think unexpectedly so. Um, and really it's, it's psychoanalysis made very accessible. Um, it's a brilliant book. And that's my comparison. I think my book is The Examined Life for the Workplace. Mm-hmm. So it's anyone interested, yes, in the workplace but more than that interested in people what makes us really tick and what goes on what are the dynamics between us um and why that that's 
that's my audience. Mm. Great. And have you got any tips, let's say top three tips for anyone writing nonfiction at the moment or even writing in general? I think nonfiction, there can be a tendency not to think enough about the reader. So I think that's a tip for nonfiction. Mm. Really think about your reader. I'm, I'm talking about myself here. Uh, what I had to learn I think also what I had to learn is I think to be honest in my first versions of this book I was showing off I was saying I was kind of saying look how clever I am look at all this knowledge I've got and that's not great I'm a bit embarrassed to say it but I was and I so I think non-fiction authors have to get hold of themselves and make sure they're not showing off. You mm. can have a whole lot more knowledge than needs to be in your book. Like in fiction, you'll yeah, know yeah. so much more about your character than needs to be in your mm. book. And you'll have all sorts of wonderful phrases, but they don't go in the book. You have to not be narcissistic about it and you have to do what's right for the book and the reader. It's exactly the same with nonfiction, but I think it's easier to forget that with nonfiction. Mm. And the, uh, the third tip, I think, you said three, didn't you? Yeah. The third tip, I think, for nonfiction is to learn from fiction. I learned some of the techniques of fiction, and that helped me enormously. And it's interesting you uh, talk about fiction, because I know that you have started to write fiction. Um, so perhaps you can end by telling us what you're working on at the moment and how it's going. Oh, thank you, Chloe. Yes, um, I'm, I've got a work in progress. So this is book two, and it's a novel that actually is about, so in a way, it's some of the same themes. It's about human nature. It's about trauma. It's about breakdown. It's about recovery. Um, and it starts from fact with my mum's, life which was traumatic she had a lot of trauma in her early life and then so that's where it starts and then it branches you know becomes completely fiction mm -hmm. um where I'm at is I've just finished the Faber write your novel online course mm -hmm. and now I'm about to do some mentoring with my Faber tutor that's the next step and that will start in a couple of weeks and very I'm exciting. I I don't know it is very exciting I don't know where it'll go but I do feel excited about mm. it it's lovely to venture into fiction yeah well I feel like you already have experience of writing fiction and certainly in this book it's not it's not dry there as I said there's some very beautiful um phrases you've you've written and um I can definitely see how that's going to work for you in fiction as well so um I wish you lots of luck with it <laughs> thank you so much that's really lovely thank you well thank you very much Gabriella for being on the podcast with me today I thoroughly enjoyed it thanks Chloe that was Gabriella Brown talking about her non-fiction book All That We Are which is out now and available to buy Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, please consider leaving a review. 
See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.